Going presently through the flying hour. This is the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Gargsville Podcast. I'm your host, Gargs Allard. I hope everything is well in your world and in your mind, because after all, we all live in our minds in one way or another. How we perceive our life is actually our world. I personally try not to identify with my mind or my physical body as myself or even the earth as my forever home. And I think that this helps me to stay sane in a world I sometimes don't feel fit for. This episode took a little while for me to put out. I'm going through a change in my life in terms of how I actually earn my dockets. Of course, I hope to someday make enough as a podcaster DJ so I can devote more time to doing these types of things. But as the saying goes, you got to eat and food needs to be put on your family. So sometimes the way I try to balance my life in this world may make me totter from time to time. And I am grateful to those who are patient with me. Before I get to my interview with my guest today, Travis Atria, frontman for Morning Bell and author of Three Biographies, who just dropped his first solo album called Moon Brain on April the 2nd, which we talk about along with such things as climate change, Gainesville, collecting records, going, going solo, and love. I would like to say a few things about his new album, which I also love and highly recommend you guys to listen to on whatever music platform you choose. It's a philosophical and psychedelic funk album with elements of rock and soul and R&B that touches the soul. It makes you feel like you're the Buddha first discovering the nature of living in a world which is both beautiful and temporal and wrought with so many problems and types of suffering. When I asked Travis what Moon Brain meant, well, you'll have to listen to the interview to find out what he had to say. The record starts off with with the title track declaring, Everyone is crazy. What has happened to us, baby? We're all moon brain. And really, that sets the tone for the whole album. The second track, No Name Street, addresses the suffering of the world, particularly the homeless problem. And Travis says, I get so tired. Why is this world so full of trouble, babe? The third song, Jazz Cigarette, another name for Reefer, and sometimes inhabitants of this earthly sphere feel like we need something to help us transcend the times we are living in. With lines like, there's poison in the water, I've got a baby daughter, shows Travis's earnest feelings for the generations we will leave this world to. Shine is a positive song that simultaneously acknowledges the force of time on our lives. As long as you live, shine, because life is a short time, and love is life's most precious treasure. In the Fullness of Time is beautiful and somber, simultaneously like many tracks on this album. It's Beatlesque, and the vocal track reminds me of Paul Simon at the top of his game. Blood Moon is Beckish, with the mood of early Black Sabbath, as Travis warns of the coming natural disasters that may only increase in time as we edge toward full-on climate change. Travis still manages to declare, come on, let your light shine, because life is a short time. Love theme is perhaps the most melodic of the many melodic songs on the record and has a late 70s slick production feel to it, like the Bee Gees collaborated with Jeff Lynne and Minnie Ripperton. Lucky, the first single on the album, is spacey and starts out with the line, they say that the meek shall inherit the earth, but baby... That's not before the wicked are through with it. What's the world coming to is not just another gradually aging person saying, get off of my lawn, but an autobiographical expression of waking up from a childhood dream to a world full of cruelty and inequity and trying one's best to navigate through it. Again, the theme of a young Prince Buddha who was sheltered in his early life until he went outside of his castle to see the suffering of of the world prevails here. Make time is a plea for appreciating the important things of life. Travis says, though the days go faster year by year, the greedy hands of time cannot touch us here. 
a slide guitar that reminds me of both the late great George Harrison's guitar playing and his message at the end of his life to love one another comes to mind. So my advice to you is to buy this record and be amazed. So here is now what I believe to be my third audio interview with Travis. I hope you like it. You're listening to the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. So what's been going on with you, Travis? I think the last time we talked was before the pandemic. Not too much. I mean, you know, I think like everybody, life kind of came to a halt. And um, I had a, you know, I had a book come out in January. And I was kind of starting to try to put together a little book tour and to sell it and to promote it. And then obviously, you know, everything, everything stopped. Um, I mean, that was last year, that was 2020. And so, you know, I just kind of, I haven't really had a chance to uh, work in that way in terms of, you know, doing nonfiction stuff like I, like most of what my books have been. It requires travel, it requires interviewing people. So I just kind of have been, you know, work, well, first of all, it's working on mostly finishing this album, Moonbrain, and, you know, just trying to find things to do and stay sane. Good to have music to work on it, you know, at a time like this. So recently you put out a book called Better Days Will Come Again, The Life of Arthur Briggs. And That's right. It got some good reviews. I'm wondering how you feel about the initial reaction and if you can give us a background on what it's about. It's about a jazz trumpeter, kind of unknown guy. I found out about him really by accident and kind of fell into the project um, without intending to. And then the more I learned about him, the more I wanted to know. And I, I thought his life was a fascinating and important story, especially for the times we were living in. I started this book just before the Trump era began. But, you know, as, um, as that stuff started to take off, this book felt really important to me to write. Arthur Briggs was a guy who is born in the island of Grenada. He came to Harlem as a teenager. He was a part of the Harlem Renaissance briefly and then he went to Europe he was one of the, the first and, and probably most influential musicians to bring jazz to Europe and he became known as the Louis Armstrong of Paris or of France um, became very famous in the jazz age over there and then he did, uh, when World War II hit he ended up getting captured he was um, by the Germans he was a British citizen technically and so he was put into a prison camp just outside Paris, he spent four years, almost the entire war, in the prison camp, where he was part of a classical orchestra made up of the prisoners. He conducted the brass section, and they performed for the Nazi commander of occupied France, a guy named Otto von Stutznagel. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was in Paris. Um, I literally, it was the day uh, after I visited the the site where he was kept prisoner that the, um, the Charlottesville unite the right rally happened. And so I was watching that happen on Parisian news, you know, as I was kind of, my head was immersed in the history of world war two and of this guy who had spent time in a Nazi prison camp. And so, you know, to watch your own countrymen hold essentially a Nazi rally, um, while you are knee deep in, in kind of that era was chilling and terrifying and I was I was honestly afraid to come home and I think that was for me a very important moment because that was when I I mean I realized it before then but that was when I really knew that this book had had a meaning that was deeper than just writing about a man's life and I always like projects like that I think the Curtis Mayfield book you know for me that came out kind of around the time of the Ferguson Missouri riots and all you know when the police killing started to become a, a really big issue again and so it, it for me, I try to find subjects where their lives or whatever I'm writing about has some sort of modern and current meaning. And I think that this book, you know, it couldn't have been uh, more timely or, more, or the message could not have been more important. I mean, essentially, this is a man whose love of music and, and just this pure love of music literally saved his life while he was in, you know, imprisoned by um, people that were fighting to establish white supremacy. You know, I mean, it's just, I don't know, it was just uh, eerie in a way. 
And in terms of the reaction to it, I mean, there really wasn't a reaction because, like I say, almost immediately after it came out, the world stopped. And so nobody's going to bookstores. I, I couldn't go promote it. I'm still kind of hoping to uh, have a chance to promote it at some point. Uh-huh. But I'm just, you know, everything's kind of waiting. Everything's on hold. One thing I found interesting, which I don't think that you mentioned yet, is that he worked with Josephine Baker. He did, yes. And uh, she's a hero of mine. So it was really fun. I mean, as you probably know, you know, uh, 10 years ago, as a matter of fact, this year, we really, on our album, Basil Profundo, we had a song called Hats Off to You, Josephine Baker. Um, and he made a cool okay, video been, with it. Yeah, I've been interested in her for a long time. So it was really fun to get to write about her as well. Um, cause she was just an absolute badass, And, and I think her life story really kind of resonated with the themes of the book and with his life. So it was, that was a fun thing to do. So, and actually speak, speaking of that album, if I may make a detour and we can talk about this more later, but we will be doing a remix remaster 10th anniversary edition later this year. Cool. Yeah. Is it going to come out in vinyl? I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Okay. So now you're working on this Moon Brain album, mm-hmm. or perhaps um, it's done. I don't know. It's it's an April second release, correct? Yeah, it's done. I mean, there was the singles have been like three singles have come out so far, and it'll be the whole album will be out April second. But it's it's been done for a while. I love what I've heard so far. Lucky love theme. Oh, thanks. In the last one, jazz cigarette. Mm-hmm. And you know they seem to be conscious about the environment number one they yep. also seem to uh be philosophical and they also seem to point to love at the same time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so is it's, that uh, are those uh recurring themes in your whole album you, you pretty much said it all right there that's you, you nailed it that's that was the entire point of the whole album um you know i i think i've become an uncle recently i don't think that i have become an uncle and i think that <laughs> kind of what happened for me um you know as i've watched my niece and nephew grow up they're right now they're they're five and seven well, you know when i started working on this album um my niece was three and my nephew had just been born uh-huh. you know as, I've, as, as you watch them grow and, and we've been going through some i think really terrifying times um i mean really if you, i mean if you look at the 21st century pretty much since September 11th, 2001. It's been like kind of one horror after another. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, I just felt like uh, I, I've had this feeling recently whenever I watch a movie or, or whatever it is, any sort of art that I'm taking in, reading a book, listening to an album, um, if the person is not trying to address, some, trying to tell me something, you know, trying to say, something that I don't know or tell me, make a statement, you know, stand up for something, say something important. I just, lately I've been getting really frustrated um, with, with works of art that are kind of frivolous um, because it seems like the, the time we're in right now is, is so deadly serious. And obviously, you know, you need, a, a respite from that and you, and you can't only talk about that but um, I just felt like uh, especially with the environment but also with you know a lot of the kind of race stuff that's been going on in America and right. I just felt like really nobody very few people were talking about or singing about it and you know music used to be I think one of the most powerful weapons you know, especially as you know, as a guy that wrote a book about Curtis Mayfield and that grew up on the music in the sixties and you know, and really with the Mayfield book did just had to make myself an expert essentially on the civil rights movement and on that era and on the music and what the music meant to it. Uh-huh. Um, I was just kinda of shocked at uh at th- what this generation seems to be doing, like how we seem to be ignoring what is going on and I felt like um I don't know, you know, it, when, when, there, when there are children involved and you realize, that you, you know, you don't know what kind of world they're going to inherit, but you realize that basically um, you got you to gotta tell them, you know, you got to help them, you got to guide them through this stuff. Um, 
I felt like I, I owed it to them in a way uh, to try to make this album about something rather than just kind of, you know, singing love songs or singing about a girl or singing, you know, I mean, a lot, I think not morning ball stuff was definitely introspective and philosophical at times, but we also had a lot of just kind of, you know, sensual, physical, whatever, just kind of songs that, you know, weren't, weren't grappling with um, the current moment. Maybe we're grappling more with just kind of the basic, what it means to be alive. Uh huh. Um, but you know, weren't grappling with, with like what is happening right now. You did that well though. Well, well, thank you. I mean, it was very difficult because I didn't know how to do that. Um, I'd never done that before. And, you know, Curtis Mayfield again was obviously my, my kind of blueprint. I mean, I, I looked to him and said, well, how did he do it? He, he, you know, he had this, this concept called painless preaching, which is where he would, you know, he would try to give you a message and tell you about what was going on and tell, tell the truth. But like, you know, it, it wasn't a sermon. It wasn't, he wasn't going to beat you over the head with it. And he was going to put it in a song that was fun, you know, that you could dance to or something. Um, but you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's really not an easy thing to do because there's a fine line between being just a boring, you know, just like um, moralizing. And um, I think, it, it, you know, very artlessly, talking about uh, what's going on in the world. And then, you know, there's a very fine line between that and between doing it in a way where it's like, feels acceptable, you know? And it, so it took me a while to figure out how do I do this in my own, in my voice? Like, how do I fit this into what I, what I do? Uh-huh. Um, and I think I tried to, you know, make it so that like, for instance, a song like jazz cigarette, right? Like, I wanted it to be almost like you wouldn't even know what the song's about unless you're paying attention. Uh-huh. Like it, it, it sounds like a slow jam R and B song. It sounds like a sex song, you know, um, jazz cigarette is slang for, you know, for a, a joint, you know, so it's like, it seems like it's a frivolous song. And the first line is temperatures always rising, which like could be a, a sexual statement, you know, mm-hmm. but if you're not, so if you're not listening closely, it's like, it's not, it, the song is not beating you over the head it kind of creeps up on you. And then if you listen a little, like, then you might catch the next line. It's like temperatures always rising. Okay. What is this song about? Maybe it's about, you know, another, just another kind of sensual slow jam. The next line is oceans acidifying. It's like, Oh shit, wait a second. We're talking about climate change here. You know? So I, I kind of wanted these songs to be really sneaky in a way. Um, And so you can kind of, you know, there's, there's always got to be good grooves. There's always got to be good melodies. And then if you want to go deeper, you can. The vessel of the catchy melodies certainly, you know, helps, helps it to uh, be different things on, on different levels. Absolutely. It's powerful. I mean, it's, it, and, uh, you know, I mean, I just, I felt like it was necessary. I tried to, and, and like you say, love, it, it, it came back to that for me. I mean, it's, it, it's a very, I don't know, kind of hippy dippy concept, but, you know, when I started writing the songs on this album, uh, I had about six of them, six of the ten songs, and they were all really dark. And my my brother listened to it, and he said, "You know, you got this. You can't be all. It can't be all this this intense." And he he kind of challenged me to write something uplifting, something positive. That's where the song "Shine" came from. Uh-huh. Um, uh, there was, there's this thing called the Cyclos, I think it's how you pronounce it, the Cyclos Epitaph, which is the oldest known song ever written. And um, it's, like on, it's like inscribed on a Greek urn or something like that. And it, the lyrics from the, my song Shine like are kind of taken straight from that. My brother said, why don't you just, like, try writing something like this, you know, with, with these words and with this concept in it. And that's when I kind of started to think, okay, if I'm trying to, talk to my niece and nephew and trying to give them something so that when they get to my age, you know, maybe this will help them make sense or at least it, it will be, um, you know, I, I, it, I can communicate to them my thoughts and my beliefs on what is the truth and what the world is about and what life is about. It can't only be darkness. I've got to communicate to them also that there are, what is the reason to pursue through the darkness? And so that's where I think I started 
trying to make it all come back to songs like Love Theme, songs like Shine, songs like Make Time, where it was about, yeah, like, we're in a really, really dire situation right now. But it is love and then these sorts of things. And it is music that, to me, makes it worth fighting for. Along that vein, how did you come up with the title Moon Brain? Uh, the album title actually, so it, it was a word I read in uh, Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. And um, I don't know what it means. I've looked it up <laughs> and it's not in the dictionary. But but I do know what it means. I, I, I don't know. I, I, like It was one of those things. I came across it in this book. She, she talked about she was walking to the streets of New York feeling moon brain. And um, I believe that's how it appears in that book. And I just, I wrote the word down because I thought, well, first of all, to me, it's like, it seemed really, just, it's a cool word. Um, and it, it, I, I knew that was going to be the title of the album from the beginning. Before I had any songs, I knew it was something. Um, to me, what the word meant was just like insanity. Uh-huh. Um, or, um, I mean, I think she was maybe using it in the sense of like being not, not dark insanity, but just kind of like being a little out of your head. But, um, I see it as it, be, it became for me the only way to describe what we are currently living through, the, the current state of, of humanity, of our mental state as a whole, as a collective. When, you know, when you've been warned for, for decades, I mean, we've known for longer than that, but, but, the, but the serious warnings have been coming for at least 20 years that, you know, we're, we are, endangering the survival of our species and you do nothing about it. I mean, like we've literally done nothing. We've, we've actually done, we've actually done less than nothing. We've done the opposite. We've gotten worse. Like, how do you, how do you describe that? How, how, how do you make sense of that? <laughs> it's like, you know, imagine you went to the doctor and the doctor said you have stage four cancer and we need to start treating it immediately or else you're definitely going to die, but we can save you. And you were like, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to wait 20 years. <laughs> How do you describe that? Uh-huh. Um, and to me, that's, that's like the significance of moon brain became, I think there's, a, you know, the lyric in the song is the world is on fire while we stoke the flames higher. And that's what we're doing. And that to me is that, that's the definition for me of this word. And I liked it because it had strangely enough. I think it has a lot of um, parliament on it, you know, uh, and and it kind of reminded me of maggot brain. You know, it had that like it's it's almost the same word. It had that feel. It kind of echoed that for me. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It was just, I mean, it's, it's just basically that's what the album is about. The album is about the insanity that of of humanity and and how you how you get through it, what you do with it, how you live, how you survive in spite of it. When I heard the name, it kind of invoked, I don't know, some kind of strange ethereal feeling, you know, like mm. everything is just so lit up right now and somehow you have to transcend it. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's part, that's definitely part of it. And, you know, outer space, particularly the moon has, for whatever reason, been a huge theme in all of the music that I've made. I mean, pretty much every album has a song, you know, mentioning that when we had goodbye ocean hello moon on uh-huh. getting to wake up and i mean there's stuff about the moon on through the belly of the sea i think there's stuff about the moon on sincerely severely there's i i had a dream that they blew up the moon on bow night i don't know what it is but there's just like something about it that i find kind of fascinating i guess you, you i guess you have a moon brain in a sense yeah yeah i guess i do <laughs> And actually, uh, in astrology, by the way, the moon rules the mind. Mm, interesting. Of course, the mind and the brain aren't necessarily the same thing. Right, right, right. But I, yeah, I, I mean, and, you know that's that's that, that's a that's a that's an interesting concept too, because I think that's you know part of what I think to me, moon brain means, and what I'm trying to say with this album is that like our collective mind as as a species, like our collective uh-huh. mind as humanity, we've fucking lost it. You know, I mean, yeah. like we are just absolutely insane as okay. like, as a group. 
the funny thing about the environment is I think a lot of people, they want to do something about it, but they, they don't think we're at the breaking point yet, even though we've been warned so many times. But right. my feeling is in actuality, we are watching it happen before our eyes. It's happening oh, now. It's, I mean, absolutely. The thing is, if, if you, you know, I've been paying attention to this closely for t- more than 20 years, or don't that 20 years. Um, and, you know, I remember reading, first becoming aware of it and reading, you know, what the predictions were, how the ocean's going to acidify, it's going to make it harder for shellfish to make their shells, it's going to come up the food chain, the ocean's going to warm, it's going to, ocean levels are going to rise. Um, you know, parts of the world are going to, going to become that are that are now kind of verdant will become just like deserts and the parts of the deserts are going to start getting snow and all this stuff and it's like you're um, freaking me out man well i mean like you know <laughs> i think the only thing that they were wrong about was that they were like this is going to start happening by about 2100 in the next century uh-huh i think they didn't they were wrong about how fast it was going to happen but you're you're i think you're right we are it is already happening. Like climate refugees are already a thing, not just around the world in the United States. People are fleeing. Uh, Louisiana is one of the, I think worst states uh, in, in America. People just can't live there anymore because of climate change. And, you know, I mean, like when you think, when you look at things like the Syrian civil war, um, which, you know, which they which has been attributed largely to drought in the kind of outlying lands that cause all the people to start rushing toward the city. Um, you know, I mean, it is, it is happening now and, uh, will, you know, get worse. I mean, there's just no way around it. Like literally, even if we stop emitting carbon dioxide today, some of this stuff is just baked in. It's just going to keep happening. You know, and that's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's really terrifying. Um, and you can get lost in that and worrying about that, but, uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't know what to do. It is, it is overwhelming. It is, uh, it is. Sometimes I go through long periods of abject depression over it. And, uh, I don't know what the answer is other than to keep just trying to fight for it and, and talk uh, about it. Uh huh. You know, what else do you do? I but, still, you know, I, mean, I still have hope. Yeah. What can, I mean, you know, you got to. I mean, the, 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 the other thing is, for instance, I mean, and this, this, this again gets to the, gets back to this concept of moon brain and of the insanity. Uh, in 2019, uh, the Pentagon released a report warning that the U.S. military might collapse within 20 years because of climate change. They're saying that due to the, uh, the expected increasing of, of superstorms, you know, uh-huh. the military will have to, the military will then have to go into these areas and kind of the army corps and stuff. They go in and they help in the police areas and stuff like that. And, uh, climate refugees, which they expect to lead to wars all over the world, increasing wars all over the world. And, um, just like the economic damage, uh, they say they, they, they actually might, it might strain the military to the point where it can no, no longer survive. And, um, Nobody said a fucking word about this report, except for Donald Trump, who said, I don't believe it. I mean, it literally, it sank like a stone. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, and, and that same year, I believe it was, you had two of the biggest, two global banks, J.P. Morgan and um, Goldman Sachs, both also put out uh, reports for their investors saying climate change is going to be economically devastating. And here's how. We are going to try to deal with it. Here's what you should know about it. And so to me, it's like, uh, you know, if you've got, this is, this is no long, we're no longer in the realm where it's just a bunch of hippies screaming about this, right? A bunch of people, uh, you know, crazy leftists or whatever. The Pentagon and two global banks are now ringing the alarm. Like, do you know how serious it has to be for that to happen? <laughs> And still, we are doing nothing, nothing about it. And what, it's just like, what what do you call that other, other than moon brain, other than insanity? Yeah, I, I think part of it is, and this is not an excuse for it, is some years back, probably a, a couple of campaigns ago, that you know they were really pressing it, and also before that with Al Gore, you know mm-hmm. how important this situation is. 
and how we it has to be our first priority and then things keep happening you know you mm-hmm. had you had 911 and right. you know then you had the economic collapse 2008 now you have the pandemic mm-hmm. and it's almost like it keeps getting put on the back burner but how but long- even the pandemic is related to climate change i mean right. it's it, it, part of the reason that the pandemic happened is because of you know human encroachment on natural territory and um you know it's like these things are going to keep like this is the thing if you've been paying attention none of this is surprising this is they have been warning about this in excruciating detail for decades at least uh-huh. and it's going to keep happening and it's going to keep getting worse and it's going to hit a point you know I, I, it, it almost feels like to me if you've ever known somebody who is a drug addict like toward the end when the doctor says, look, if you take one more drink, if you do, you know, take drugs one more time, it's going to kill you. And by that point, the person is just like, I can't stop. You know, like I have made my choice mm-hmm. and I just like, they're too far along the road to turn back. It feels like that's kind of what we're, what we're trying to do collectively. It's like, just keep kicking the can down the road until we get to that point where it's like, well, too, too too far gone now. Sorry, it was a good run. And, and you know, and again, like the thing is, you can get really boring talking about this stuff, uh-huh. or especially singing about this stuff. And so, I think for me, a big part of the album was how do I address this uh, musically without getting to the point where you're just like, all right, man, come on. Like we get it. <laughs> now, and I don't know if I did it or not, but I tried. Well, let me ask you this, which track on the album is probably the heaviest. I think the heaviest track is, um, it's called what's the world coming to. And that's the one where for me, it's actually a suite. It's two songs smashed together. Uh, the second half of it, is a love song, which I did purposely because I couldn't have just that heaviness hanging there by itself. Um, but that one for me, it, it was like the, the, the point of the album. It comes, it's the second to last song, and it was the point where I felt like, okay, now is the time. Stop trying to couch it in poetic language. Stop trying to, you know, sneak up on the listener and just say it. And so, you know, I mean, even the even the title like "What's the World Coming To," which in there, which that's the hook of the song too. Like you know that that's that is pretty in your face, and it's it's um something that I think I might not have had the guts to do earlier in my musical life, but it just was like if you're not going to have the guts right now, just come out and say it. Then what what are you waiting for? Is the way I felt about it. Is it anything like "The World Is Going Up in in Flames"? By Charles Bradley. Oh, I haven't heard that song. Well, I, I highly recommend it. I'll have to listen to it. I wanted to ask you about the creative process. Sometimes, you know, myself, when I feel inspired, you know, the creative juices are flowing and there's, I don't know, I just kind of feel a, a sense of endless possibilities. Mm-hmm. While other times, I don't particularly feel inspired at all. And I kind of, just long for those days when I was younger where I had no, like, like really young, you know, I had no expectations for myself. Mm-hmm. I had no guilt about what I was doing or not doing. I could just enjoy every moment of my life. And I kind of like long for that. And, uh, and then it seems when I get in that mood again, all of a sudden the, the creativity comes back. So I'm I'm just wondering what kind of state of mind do you kind of have to be in for that, you know, that creative spring or well or muse or whatever it is to like, you know, you really feel you're, you know, you're vibrating with it. Good question. And it's a good, especially a good question regarding this album, because I mean, I've been pretty much making albums nonstop since I was 18 or so. And so I mean, that's almost, that's 20 years, 20 solid years of just kind of going from one project to the next. And this was the first, this, this is the longest I've ever taken to make an album. I was working on this album for five years. And a big part of that is because, you know, 
so much of my life changed. I mean, my life was kind of an upheaval throughout this process. I mean, during the process of making this album, I got married. Uh-huh. Uh, I, be, you know, my brother had two kids. We stopped playing that morning bell. Um, Congratulations on the first three. <laughs> I moved to New York um, and then moved back to Gainesville and then moved again um, to Melbourne because my wife, you know, was moving around for her work. And, um, and I wrote three books, you know, so it was like, I couldn't give music the kind of all day, every day attention that I used to. And at the same time, I was trying to do something different, something that I'd never done before. I was working with a lot of new technology. I bought like, I was trying to do something a little more, with a little more modern technology, not just, not just traditional rock and roll bands. I bought like this called Ableton software, it's beat making software. So a lot of the drums in this are, you know, it's electronic beats that I made or that I used uh-huh. from live, you know, different beat libraries and stuff. And, but, you know, I didn't know how to do any, like it, a lot, again, it was like, I was trying to figure out how does this new software, how does this new, these new instruments fit in with what I do. It and kind, then once kind I kind of had this figure, late seventies, like a, uh, you know, funky pop rock so- sound. It, yeah, it does, but and it's, and it's weird because I was going for something more modern and maybe I got something that was more retro, but, um, <laughs> but you know, I think at least with the technology I was using, it was definitely more modern and more of the moment. But yes, yeah, you know, I think it's like, well, how do I work that into what I do? Uh-huh. Well, it, sound, it sounds very, how, very posh. And then trying to think of like, how do I, then, then how do I work in these like kind of, you know, world conscious lyrics into what I do? Like I never tried that before. And so, Okay. And, you know, in the middle of trying all of this, I'm also just like, I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm like, I'm moving and, um, I'm trying to write books, which is like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I didn't realize how hard it was to write a book. And what's the other book that you wrote besides um, Mayfield and Briggs? I ghost wrote a book called, uh, anything for a hit. It was the, a memoir for a woman. She was the first female A&R executive at Atlantic records. And uh, it was just kind of like, it came out of the height of the Me Too movement. It was just like what it was like to be a woman in the music business, you know, in the 80s, basically. Um, it was a fun book to write, really fun book. And her name was Dorothy Carvello. It's a good story. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was just like, my attention was in so many different places that I, there were moments, there were many moments while I was making these songs, especially because Morning Bell had stopped, where I was just like, what am, why am I doing this? Like, you know, like whenever I would hit that block, because you always hit a block. Whenever you're creating something, you're always going to hit a point where it's just like, oh, I don't know what to do here. And the band was what always gave me the, the momentum to push past those. You know, oh, you know, we're going to, I want to put out a new album. We want to go on tour. We want to play a show. And there was always a reason to. But without the band, I was, you know, I didn't really know who I was. And without my brother, too, because we, you know, going back even further than the band, I mean, we started playing guitar learning guitar at the same time together, I was 12 years old, you know? So really we had spent 25 years or something, you know, playing together and having the same dream and the same goal together. And now all of a sudden that was gone. And so um, there were times making this album where I thought, I just, I'm just going to give up. Like, I don't think I should keep doing this. Mm. And there were times, I remember there was one time where I literally was trying to write I had a, a song, a music that I really liked and I couldn't come up with a melody for it. And I was for days just trying different melodies and nothing was working. And I remember just like stopping and just yelling out loud by myself in my house, why won't you come to me? <laughs> because I usually I was like, if I usually, if I put in the work, the thing will come. And this thing was just not coming to me, you know? And then, um, but I don't know what, maybe it was just stubbornness that made me keep doing it. And then, you know, as I, as I really kind of chipped away at it, I started to see the album take shape. And then almost, you know, without me knowing it, it turned into something that I feel like I'm really proud of. I feel like it's really good. And it's probably the most cohesive and coherent thing I've ever done. It was, it was a struggle. It was a difficult album to make. Why did you decide to do a solo album this time? Uh, yeah, I mean, really, this was supposed to be a Morning Bell album. I, I was I was hoping it would be a Morning Bell album. But um, it basically, it was just like, they were not in the... I mean, Chris 
our drummer plays, Chris Hillman plays drums on several of these tracks, but uh-huh. uh, my Eric and Stacy bass and keyboards, they just, they were not in a place where they were able to focus on, on, on recording, you know? And so I would, I, you know, I would, when I was starting to make these songs, I would send them to the band like I usually do and say, like, what do you think? You want to come play some parts, whatever. And, you know, and I think it was just like, eventually I realized, okay, they're not going to work on this with me. They just, they're just not in that place right now. They don't have time for it. They don't have the interest in it, whatever it is. And so that was when I was like, you know, all right, well, this is going to be my thing. Then. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I'll start, I'll, I'll start my own thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think in a way it's nice to do that because it gives a little feeling of freshness. It's not like, you know, you don't have, you don't have any baggage. You don't have like, not like oh here comes this band with their seventh album you know after 15 years it's like you can you can feel new again which is kind of nice uh-huh and i felt like also since this book was so inspired by the writing i've done and uh that it would be nice to have it out under my own name you know so it would be kind of like of a of a piece that could be like oh the guy that wrote the book made the album you know i thought that would be a nice thing how about the branding of your name? Atria, I noticed it like on, on Spotify. Yeah, I mean, what's funny is there's, there's several other bands called Atria, and I don't I know why that they too. call themselves that. <laughs> but I don't think they have the rights like I do because um, it is literally my name, and I couldn't think of anything better, okay. and uh, I didn't want to try. <laughs> you put yours all in, in all caps. Yeah, I like it in all caps, but... Uh, yeah, I just figured that, uh, why not, you know? So many people have done that. It's, uh, Van Halen, this this is my Van Halen moment. Well, it sounds like an avatar or something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a cool word. You know, it's got a lot of meaning. And uh, I don't know. Band names are very hard. I figured out, you know, because when you come up with a band name, you got to think of how is this going to encapsulate whatever work we might want to do? How is it? How is this going to tell people who we are and what we do you know and can we grow with this name what what you know, because there's, there's throwaway band names and then you know like you don't want to get stuck with that but i figured if i call myself atria then no I, whatever i do it's, it's going to be right <laughs> nobody can say it's not me very good point how did you come yeah. up with the name the slims um so uh, we went to a party that was like it was like a theme party of a like the old West and the girl that threw it had made wanted posters for everybody. And she gave us all old West nicknames and the old West nickname she gave me was the slim. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh, that's kind of a fun name. You know, we didn't realize it until later, but apparently slims is a, is a, um, epithet for Muslims, which we were very unhappy to discover because we'd already put out two albums. <laughs> you know, oh, really? this was our band name. Yeah. I, didn't I don't know. know. I mean, I've never heard anyone. I never heard anyone use it, but I can guarantee you that that was not what we intended. Um, just in case anyone has ever thought that. So what do you plan to do when this pandemic ends? Oh God, I don't know. I would love to play a show again. I would, I would really like to be able to promote the Briggs book a little bit. Cause you know, I still think it's important. The message is still important, even though we're out of the Trump era, I don't think we're out of the woods by any means. And, you know, I'd like to just keep making things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm recording another album right now, actually. It, I, I've been doing it kind of at the same time as finishing Moonbrain. I'm doing this one with um, Ryan Williams at Black Bear Studios in Gainesville. And uh, it's the first time I've ever worked this way, like actually going into somebody's studio and doing a whole album that way. And it's, you know, it's going to be completely different to me. It's, it's similar to Bowen Noise in the sense that there's like basically going to be a whole full orchestra on it, but it's more like singer-songwriter type stuff, concept album. I'm really excited about it. I don't wow. know when I'll finish it, but, but I'm hoping to finish that and get that out. We're going to do, like I said, we're going to do Remix Remaster of Basso Profundo um, for later this year, 10th anniversary in December. We were talking with the city about maybe doing a free Friday concert if they're able to open that back up later this year. That would be cool. That's Morning Bell. Yeah. And um, I've been, you know, actually, so since I couldn't really write, like, anything, I couldn't, like, research a new project or anything, I just started writing 
a murder mystery while I was really bored in quarantine. So I, if it, if it, I might finish that, see if anyone will publish it. That's cool. Yeah. Um, Cause I just needed something to do. You know, I was like, I needed to keep my chops up and it's not, as I had nothing to, to write about. And so I was like, I guess I better make something up here. It doesn't sound like you watch much TV. You get I, all this I stuff watching, done. I guess I watch a decent amount of TV. But you do. I, think, I, I, I usually watch, I watch TV with me with breakfast and with dinner. Oh, okay. That's basically what I do or I, I have it on in yeah. the background when I'm doing something like I yeah. watch a lot of sports. You know, I, I've been making stuff for a long time, and um, you know, going back to when you were talking about the creative process, like, uh, and, and sometimes feeling exhausted. Like, I've been in a state of constant creative exhaustion for the last probably nine years, and um, especially once I started writing the books. I mean, that is just an absolutely excruciating and exhausting thing to do. And um, you know, part of me thinks, well. I got to give myself a break at some point. But then part of me is afraid that if I stop doing things, I'll never start again. Uh Uh-huh. Do you feel that you are, that you put pressure on yourself sometimes? That's maybe too much. Do you try to find like the right balance? Because, you know, when you, there's a lot of, if there's a lot of projects that you're excited about and that you want to do and you feel a sense of, you know, there's only so much time to do them, you know, even in a lifetime. You feel yeah, like- I know. I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky that, I, that I'm able to, you know, to work on things that I'm passionate about. And I try to, I try to honor that by, by actually doing it, you know. But, I mean, there, that is something I think about because whenever I'm taking a, you know, taking a job just because I want to get the paycheck and I'm like, I have no interest in this work and it's taking me away from the other work I do have interest in. You know, it, 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 that, that to me is the hardest thing when you're, uh-huh. when you're just working on something because, you know, because they're going to pay you some money for it. Um, and you're ignoring the things that you really care about that you're probably not going to make any money on. But, you know, that's life. Um, and I'm lucky to be able to get to do all these, you know, all these projects. Uh-huh. So I try, I try to, um, you know, I try to, to keep myself working as much as I can and, and producing and, um, you know, and, and making it hopefully good. I mean, I try to keep getting better. But my, I guess a part of the question was though, do you ever stress yourself out by putting too much pressure on yourself? Oh, I'm sure I do. I'm sure I do. Um, I don't know who doesn't. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear that I'm not alone in that. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, the album is coming out on April 2nd? That's right. And uh, how can people get it? This will be the first thing I've ever made that will not have a physical component. So it's going to be on all the streaming services. I actually have designed a part of, of my website, travisatria.com. Uh, I have designed a part of it just for this album where you, where there's all the artwork, there's lyrics and you can kind of click through and enjoy the album in that way. Um, if you want to, it's a virtual uh, album song by song. Um, you know, so you can go to my website, you can go to Spotify, you can go to uh, Apple music, you can go to whatever the hell else people are listening to music <laughs> on these days, uh-huh. but you cannot buy a CD or a record. Which is very strange because it almost feels like I didn't make anything. Do you ever think that somebody might make a bootleg of it? Hey, I'd have no problem with that. I mean, honestly, the main reason I didn't make a, a product was because, you know, first of all, I don't have a band for this. And second of all, there's nowhere to perform. It's like, you know, I would just end up with hundreds of these things sitting in my garage forever. I mean, how would I, uh-huh. you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to actually like get it in front of people and um, and sell them. So I figured... Why not just uh, get with times? Put it out on the internet. It's like uh, spitting in the ocean. But you know, there's still a reality there. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it, it has been um, it's been fascinating actually this process because since the last album, I last album I put out was in 2013, and that's really before Spotify became it was it was around, but not, uh-huh. it wasn't like it wasn't really it was new. It wasn't really a thing yet. 
and back then that was still like that was the end that was the tail end of the blog era where it was like you got a good review on pitchfork that's what you wanted right and now who could give a shit about a blog the only thing that matters is are you on the spotify playlist that everyone's listening to like it's, it's been kind of fascinating to see the shift and and it's one of those like the more things change the more they stay the same like it is literally it's, it's always been the same game I think in every era of the music business, it's always been about whether you were trying to get a radio DJ to play your 45 or you're trying to get somebody to put your song on a Spotify playlist. It's about, and this, this is back, going back to the song Lucky. First of all, it's about getting lucky. It's about how much money you have behind you. And it's about how, how good your connections are. I mean, it's like that's always been the case, always will be the case. Uh huh. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of payola and stuff that is alive and well. So it is kind of, it has been very fascinating for me to, to watch this shift in the music business, but then also like how, how it feels like I'm doing the exact same thing, even though it's this brand new technology. It's like the, it's the same game in, in a way. Do you collect any type of physical music like vinyl or CDs? Or- yes, I have a vinyl, I have a vinyl collection. My record player just broke. So I don't really know if I'm going to get a new one and continue or if I'm just going to let it all go. But yeah, I have a lot of, I've been collecting vinyl for um, probably 15 years and maybe a little more. No, actually probably since about 2003. What is that? 18 years. And I got some great records that way. And you know, I mean, that for me, that was a musical education. I think the great thing about vinyl and, and that's, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's kind of making a comeback and outselling even CDs at this point um, is that, or at least for me, like when you, walk into a record store, you, first of all, you are limited to what is inside that record store. And second of all, you will find things that you, you would have never even thought to look for. That you didn't even know existed. And those are, those are the ones to me, that's, that's where the treasure is. Cause there's been so many records that I've found, you know, that, that weren't probably ever popular, will never be written about any role, will never be reviewed anywhere that maybe you couldn't find 10 people in the entire world that have heard of it, but you know, it'll, it'll just change your life. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's to me, the magic of it. I remember reading when Charles scales died, um, mm. your accounts of hide and seeks when you would go. Yeah. There. I mean, it was like you, that. And also sharks. I love sharks. It's like every time you go into these places, you walk out with, with an education. Uh-huh. Some, something to learn from, you know, like uh, really that was, I think, I mean, that's, it taught me everything. The, the entire trajectory of every, all the music I've made has been based on, on that stuff. I mean, there was, you know, I mean, before we were making Sincerely Severely, I was, I was going to the record stores and I was like, well, you just buy a bunch of Al Green records and just see what he's all about, you know? And then it's like finding Curtis Mayfield and all that sort of stuff. And like, oh shit, this is cool stuff. This is different than what I've, you know, than what I was raised on and what we, the kind of music we were making. And then before we made Bo and Oich, um, friend Colin and I, uh, Colin of the Shitty Beatles fame, we would go to the UF Music Library and just, just pick out weird records that they had there. And so I was like, you know, get this weird classical music that I'd never heard of before. You know, avant-garde classical music or just like some field recording from Hungary, you know? And then it's like, uh-huh. Oh man! So we started taking samples from that stuff, or you know, and using it in the bow and Night stuff, and then that that drove me to want to make something with more kind of like an orchestral feel. I mean, you, I would have never, in a hundred years of of on YouTube or Spotify or anything, would it, would I have come upon these things? You know. Uh huh. Um, even though even though the name Boanoich came from a record that like it was just in like a dollar bin at the bottom you know of, of sharps on underneath all of his regular containers there was just this weird brazilian album that like had almost no information on it uh that is just one of the most incredible things i've ever heard i mean it really is it is weirder and more musically interesting than almost anything that i that i know of being made right now do you have and that do you, you know, get it yeah, I have. I mean, I have it. I listen to it all the time. Okay. And it had a song called Bo Noich on it. And that's where I got that from. I want to you know, hear it's it. Like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, this stuff is like, you could not 
ever find this album unless it was by accident at a, at a record store ever. I mean, that's the only way, you know, but it, I mean, again, it changed my life. It, it made me a deeper and a better musician. Uh-huh. There are records I remember seeing and listening to when I was young and they have mm-hmm. vanished. I, you look them up on the internet, you can't find anything about mm-hmm. them. Yeah. I mean, you know, some, some stuff, believe it or not, does go underneath even the internet radar. Uh-huh. Like I said, you can't get that any other way. The good record store is a, is a rare treasure. I try to go, I mean, it's very convenient to buy records, you know, through the mail, mm-hmm. you know, via the internet. And, right. But, but that's, you know, the other thing about that, again, it's like you have to, you have to be looking for it. Uh-huh. That's and true. I think what I love so much, what I love so much, my favorite thing to happen with record collecting is where I could not have possibly been looking for it. It had to find me somehow. Right. Yeah. That's just a magical thing. And you, and you see the record and you get a, you get a feeling about it when you see it. You, you see the cover and you're just like, what the hell is this? I gotta, uh-huh. I gotta hear this. You know, and then you put it on and you're like, holy shit, this is unbelievable. And then it becomes an obsession. I think that, uh, if there was no record stores in Gainesville, it would be a uh, profoundly sadder place. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, there's been some great ones that have come and gone in my time there. And, uh-huh. uh, I think the only one I know of right now is here again. Yeah, uh, pretty much. I think the other one closed down, which is too bad. Arrow's Aim, great, yeah. Arrow's Aim, that was a great store. I enjoyed that store. Uh-huh. Also here again, we'll keep keep kicking. Um. But here again, it's more like they're 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 good for for new vinyl or for like right. new pressing. Yeah. Um, Whereas Arrow's aim was the, they went the other right. Route. Like in terms of just finding the weird old stuff in the dollar bin, you got to go somewhere else. Uh huh. I've found I've found, and so we need something like that. We need something like that in Gainesville. I tend to scour yard sales and thrift stores. That's a great idea. I mean, my friend Ryan recently gave me a bunch of old 78 gospel 78 that he found at a yard sale by this group called the Ward sisters. Never heard of them. Uh-huh. Unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff, you know? And then, and then it's like, and then, and this is how for me, like this is how I got interested in writing about a lot of this stuff. It's like, cause you start looking these people up and then you're like, Oh shit, this woman, Clara Ward, like she apparently the rumor has it that she had a three way with Martin Luther King. You know, it's like, what a story that is. Unbelievable. How could you not want to know more about this? You know? And then you just like, you start going down these rabbit holes uh-huh. and you get really into just like the, uh, the nitty gritty, the, you know, the absolute kind of forgotten, but awesome stories. And that's why I love the magazine Wax Poetic, which by the way is, is making a comeback. And I think in a month or two, I actually wrote the, the cover story for their first edition of their reboot. It's on Marvin Gaye. Um, but you know, like a magazine like that, which was dedicated really to kind of like prioritizing those sorts of stories, like saying like, yeah, okay, look, we're going to give you the big names like James Brown or somebody, but like we've, we've heard those stories. Let's look at the people that you might not have ever heard of, but that have had unbelievable lives in music, you know? And I, I, I got really into that sort of thing and uh-huh. you, you can get, you can get crazy with that stuff. And then you ended up like, so far off in your own little niche that like you can only talk to five other people because nobody else shares your interests. But I don't know. I mean, that's, that's another part of record collecting. It's like, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's really, um, if you want it to be, you know, it doesn't have to be that, but it can be a road, you know, right to the heart of music. To the forgotten, it's like archeology span in a way. Yeah. And what I, another thing I love about it, is anytime my wife and I go, you know, for a weekend somewhere or a vacation, no matter where it is, mm-hmm. I find out where the record stores are, and I'm excited oh, yeah. about. That. Yeah, I used to love doing that. That was one of my favorite things about being when we would go on tour. You go to you know, all these different cities around the country. Like, what kind of record store they got? And honestly, I will say that after you know being in I don't know twenty something or thirty different states and going to record stores, most of them, I without without any sort of like you know hometown pride i honestly felt like i couldn't find anything better anywhere than i used to find in sharps and hide and zeke uh-huh you really have a you really have a warm fuzzy feeling about it yeah i love those places 
it, it taught me so much. I mean, really, the musician made me made me you know who I am or who I have been at least. You know, I mean, the early musical education came from my dad and you know, him giving us the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and stuff. Uh huh. But then my you know, as an adult, my education all came from record stores, pretty much. How does it feel to be in Melbourne now? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't really. I don't have a feel for this place yet. Um, uh huh. Part part of the problem has been that you know obviously the last year we haven't been able to really go anywhere, so I don't I don't know it. Right. I miss Gainesville. I miss Gainesville. I mean, obviously I live in Gainesville for seventeen years or something like that, and, and, uh-huh. and love it there. Didn't didn't want to leave particularly, but um, you know it's a, it's a it's a just a matter of kind of settling in and getting used to change. And it's nice to be near a beach again. I'll tell you that much. What about South Florida? Do you miss South Florida? I don't really miss it down there. Um, I go back to visit my parents every now and again, but um, I don't know. It, that place kind of got a little too crazy for me. I remember after living in Gainesville for a couple of years, going back home to visit and just realizing like, this is, this is not really, there's nothing for me here. I think that's why we never went back. And that's why we, that's why we left. You know, we started the band down, down there, down in Miami. But like it, there wasn't a scene for people like us or for people making the music we were making. Uh-huh. There wasn't anything for us there really. Like we were kind of we went a little bit in the desert, you know. We, we were alone, and then we came to Gainesville and we realized, oh, there's like a whole community of like-minded people. And so, um, you know, I mean, I, I I miss I mean I miss certain things about it, obviously. I mean, I think. It's a more diverse place. It's a more interesting place in many ways. It has better food, probably. <laughs> but it's, it's just like it's not really a place for a person like me making the type of music that I make. <laughs> uh huh. There's no more civilization in Gainesville. You mean that literally or figuratively? Because like there no, literally I mean, is no more civil- I'm, no, civilization. No, <laughs> I'm talking about the restaurant. The restaurant, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, I love playing that place. Like sitting up on that bar and just like being the entertainment for the night uh-huh. while people ate their dinner. That was, that was the greatest. Those are the most fun times I ever had playing music. Or like playing on Tuesdays, what, Tuesdays or Wednesdays, the Flacos. Oh, yeah. With Michael Clater and all of them. Like those are some of the greatest times you could possibly have playing. Well, thanks, and, Travis. And, you know, I mean, I think the, the last thing I'll say, the last okay. thing I'll say about, games, about Gainesville is that it's been an incredible experience. And my brother and I talk about this all the time. It's been an incredible experience for us. You know, we started out the band. We wanted to be the Beatles. You know, you think, oh, we're going to be the biggest thing that ever happened. Uh-huh. And of course, you know, you, nobody does that. But I think, like, while we were kind of pursuing that, I think without almost without realizing it, we were building kind of a community around ourselves in Gainesville that, it, that still exists to this day. And I think one of the greatest things, all of us feel this way, I think one of the greatest thing in all of our lives is the fact that after, you know, what, uh, 17 years after coming to Gainesville, there's still people, you know, that, that we are communicating with and that are interested in what, in the music that we're making and that will come watch us perform and that we can, you know, people that we're still playing with, making music with. And I, I mean, that, what an incredible thing that, is, you know, and that, that is, um, I don't know. I can't imagine anything better. I can't imagine a better definition of success than like the people in your own community embracing you and you having a relationship that lasts for all two decades. Like we could have, we were, we we're so lucky to have had that. You know how, um, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm sure I've told you before when I'm driving Uber and somehow morning bell comes on, mm-hmm. I get a lot of comments. Who are they? Well, oh, nice. That sounds great. And then, I, and then I was happy when I saw, uh, I saw, um, you know, I heard the song on uh, Better Things, you know, the Pamela Alden. Yeah, right. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was, the, you know, when I heard that, it just kind of gladdened me, you know. And I think yeah, a, a, that that was really nice. A lot of people have that feeling about Morning Bell here in Gainesville, you know. Um, well, I'm, you know, it's, it's an incredibly flattering thing, and we feel the same way about you. <laughs> That's cool. You're listening to the Gargsville Podcast. 
with your host, Gargs Allard. Hello, this is Gargs Allard, host of Power Pop Portal, the Gainesville Grooves, and the Gargsville Radio Hour. I'm here to tell you you can become just like me with my brand new 777 diet program, as seen on infomercials everywhere. I developed the 777 diet program to make my life simpler, and yours can become simpler too. I will personally show you how to gain 7 pounds in 7 days on only $7 a day. That's 7 pounds in 7 days for only $7 a day. You must not be averse, however, to a diet consisting primarily of pizza and ice cream. That's the 777 program available at Walmart, Walgreens, and across the street at CVS. Tell them Garg's Allard sent you. It's time for all of us to once again float off into different frequencies. The night dreams and the daydreams. Until the next time we meet again in Gargsville.